0: Hi, I'm Sarah, and this is the podcast version of my newsletter called Sarah by the Season, where I explore what is piquing my curiosity as I try to lean into nature's wisdom and rhythms. Subscribe and learn more at sarahbytheseason.com. I'm recording outside where I like to write if the weather permits, so enjoy the sounds of our place and excuse my uh, wildfire-slash-allergy-induced voice. The title of this week's newsletter is How Does Fear Show Up? Getting curious. I've been thinking a lot about this on being episode with Amanda Ripley, a journalist turned conflict researcher who has been studying and writing about what she calls high conflict, which she defines as the invisible hand of our time. It's what happens when discord distills into a good versus evil kind of feud, the kind with an us and a them. In this state, the brain behaves differently. We feel increasingly certain of our own superiority and at the same time, more and more mystified by the other side. Well, that sounds familiar. The whole episode is really worth listening to, but this little story about her son is what I've been thinking about lately. She noticed that when her son was afraid, it came out as anger. He got mad. And once she noticed it in her son, she realized that was what happened when she got scared, too. She got angry. The thing I hate about cable news generally, and Fox News in particular, is how they're obsessed with keeping viewers scared except when it costs them viewers, like rational reporting about COVID or gun reform or January 6th. I wrote about being sick of the rage cycle, but I didn't think to connect it to what might be underlying all of the latent rage we're seeing everywhere, especially as we see young people making very innocent mistakes and getting shot for them. When we're scared, for many of us, anger is what shows up because we've been indoctrinated that it's weak to show that we're afraid. In most spaces, anger is not only allowed, but often glorified. I have to make this analogy about difficult emotions when I'm teaching yin. The difficult emotion is like a beach ball that you're trying to push under the water. It might disappear for a second or two, but then it pops up elsewhere in unexpected ways. When we stuff or numb our difficult emotions, they're like trying to push the beach ball under the water. It doesn't go away, it just comes up sideways, usually at very inopportune times. Instead, it's better to sit with the difficult emotion, to get curious about it, to see it as a teacher instead of an enemy. Pema says, nothing ever goes away until it has taught us what we need to know. So you might as well deal with it on your own terms instead of risking it coming up sideways with all sorts of blowback. If fear is underneath the anger that we're stuck in cycles of, then we can't deal with the anger until we've dealt with the fears. There's plenty to be afraid about. We are living in an unbelievably destabilizing time. The pace of change continues to accelerate with little thought to consequences. We seem to be more divided than ever, or at least watching the news certainly makes you feel that way. And the climate crisis alone forces me into the fetal position with the covers over my head more times than I'd like to admit. Ripley says, in high conflict, any intuitive thing you do to get out of the conflict will almost certainly make things worse. So now I try, and I don't always succeed, to take my first intuition and just ask myself could I do the opposite? What would that look like? Because that's how you step out of that dance. But it's very unintuitive. Our instinctual thing to do when there's conflict is to get angry to fight back. I tend to retaliate in my own head, often for hours after the conflict, even if I don't physically or verbally fight back. Ripley is saying what many of us have experienced firsthand. Our initial response when we're in contentious situations is maybe not the most trustworthy response. That initial flash of anger is valid and good information, but it likely isn't terribly conducive to resolving the situation at hand. In another On Being episode, activist Adrienne Marie Brown talked about when she was organizing for the 2004 presidential campaign that she had this realization that they were putting all their efforts into the presidential campaign. She said that she was like, oh, we are trying to just change the top layer of this very layered cake, this very layered process, this system of governance. We think that if we just win the presidency, that then we'll be able to change the world. And it clicked for me that it's like, actually, it's a fractal system. And it's layer on top of layer on top of layer. And if none of us are practicing democracy anywhere, it's not just going to suddenly work at the top layer. And then I realized, so there was, there's something about smallness I was able to gain respect for. Because I was like, every single large system or structure or network or political protocol, all of it is made up of small things of humans either having or not having necessary conversations and humans being willing to stand up for what is right and stand up against what is wrong. It's all these small activities that we need to get great at if we want to actually have anything that would be a real democracy. She goes on to say that we can't expect democracy to work on a macro scale if we aren't practicing it in our own homes and with our own neighbors. In this specific context, she's talking about democracy, but the same is true for the values we want to see more of in the world. We can't expect them out there if we aren't practicing them within ourselves and in our immediate closest relationships. Something about the American way of life biases us to what I've called the epic life mentality. So we're partial to the bigger, grander gestures instead of the smaller, more mundane practices that Brown argues are required to affect actual and long-lasting change. I've been getting curious about my own instances of anger since listening to Ripley explain the anger-fear connection, and I've been getting curious about how anger shows up in our home. It helps me to have more compassion for myself and my family because I'm trying to focus less on the actual anger and more on what might be underneath it. Think if I multiplied that out beyond the walls of my house to get curious about what fears might be underneath the person angrily honking at me at the red light or my coworker who snapped at me in frustration. Think if all of you reading these words chose curiosity instead of anger or retribution. Even just occasionally, you can quickly imagine how that would ripple out in our communities. I don't think the solution to how divided we are is to just start being more curious about our friends and neighbors' anger. I think there are at least 73 things that we could try, some of them individual and some of them collective. We like to act like there is one solution to our problems and then fight over the solutions. In fact, our problems are complex and require complex, varied, and many solutions. But I do think a way of building the kind of world we want for ourselves, the generations to come, and the more-than-human world, is to choose curiosity whenever we get the chance. You'll have to check out the actual newsletter for this week's Scattering Seeds, where I share things that help us lean into nature's wisdom, which you can find at SierraByTheSeason.substack.com. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you know of someone else who might like this sort of thing, I would love it if you would share it with them. You don't know how big of a difference it makes to writers and creators when you share our work. Learn more at sarahbytheseason.com and cheers to getting curious in the week ahead.